gentlemen, welcome aboard the Athletics Can't Wait Jets podcast, your nonstop shop for all things Jets. Now here are your hosts, Tim McMaster and Connor Hughes. Listen safely. Can't wait! The presenting sponsor for today's episode of Can't Wait is Visa, a network working for everyone. The Jets went all the way to London to lose a football game. I'm Tim McMaster along with the Athletics Jets reporter Connor Hughes and our producer Marissa Morris. Thanks for checking us out on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get us. Please leave a review if you can. That helps us out if, if it's a good review. Um, that really helps us <laughs> out as we grow the show. Lots to get to. Uh, the offenses continue to struggle early in games. Zach Wilson taking a step back after a big step forward against the Titans. We'll also talk about the defense and the bye week. But we have to start with well, the Jets were in London, which means Connor Hughes went to London, and he's wearing a shirt to prove it. Connor, how did it go? It's actually, this isn't from London. This is from Wildwood. Oh, oh. This is the Anglesey Pub in Wildwood, <laughs> New Jersey. It's one of my favorites. I just think uh, we need to point out Connor made it back safely from London, which I is did. the point. biggest yeah, thing point. of all. I will so, say, like, congrats. probably London was great, but I think my highlight of the trip was the fact that on both my flight down and or over and my flight back over, um, crossing the pond, as everyone likes to say over and over and over again. Uh, I had the road to myself in and out of Philly. So I was able to Brie got me these melatonin tabs to like kind of knock me on my butt. And I popped one of those like 30, 40 minutes before the flight, got on the flight, had the road to myself, put the things up, the pillows up, made a nice little bed. And I was slept from the way down over to London. I slept for it's a seven hour flight. We had a two and a half hour delay. I slept for the two and a half hour delay on the tar on the on the tarmac plus six of the seven hour flight. Like I woke up and we had 40 minutes to land and I was like, holy crap, this was awesome. And then on the way home, I did the same thing. I think I woke up like two hours before, but that was a morning flight. So the, that was one of the best parts, but it was cool, man. It was, I think hearing the accents was, was really neat. I got a chance to go to like this little cafe for an English breakfast, which was fun. I played a round of golf with uh, Ethan Greenberg and Andy Vasquez. Literally as soon as we got off the plane, we Ubered to a golf course, changed in the locker room, and then played some golf down there to kind of knock that one off the bucket list as well. Um, and then it was just, you know, uh, went to a pub, experienced that, saw the London, or not the London Bridge, but saw Big Ben, uh, did the Abbey Road thing. And and uh, the one thing I will say, though, no joke, is like, obviously, I've covered, I've traveled since 2016 covering the NFL. Um, I don't have a British accent. I tried to bring one out. I see that comment. Um, I tried to bring out a British accent and instead it came out Australian. So I'm just going to keep that one tabled for a very long time. I'm good at like, you know, the Steve Irwin crikey, but I'm not going to bring out any British accent and offend a large number of people. Apparently a decent amount of, actually we have a decent amount of viewers here from Britain, but, um, I, uh, I've obviously traveled since 2016, seeing different stadiums, which has been like a really cool part of this job. Um, Baltimore is one of my favorites, Atlanta, really, really cool. Arizona, obviously up there as well. Um, this Tottenham Spurs stadium that we went to, the one that was built for the NFL games in London, that was the most remarkable football stadium venue spectacular that I've ever seen. Now I've never been to Dallas to see Jerry's world, but this one was like out of this world, both the design the media room, the fact that the press row is basically at the going across the 50-yard line in open air, so you're basically surrounded by fans, which was awesome too. The environment, the atmosphere, the people screaming, like everyone singing uh, uh, God Bless the Queen. Is that like the, the national anthem of, of London or, or all that stuff or the UK? So like everyone's singing that. Then the American national anthem from atop the building, like just it was the stadium was cream of the crop, spectacular. And I'm not kidding you when I say I attended that game 
both from getting there, walking in there, seeing it, seeing the locker room, seeing this, all that stuff, to now go back and cover a game at MetLife Stadium in three weeks is going to be like, you're the New York Jets. You're the New York Giants. You are football supreme, like in the biggest media market in the world, in the biggest city in the world, the greatest city in the world. And in London, they can build that masterpiece. And the Jets give you, Costello's the one who's basically coined this, an air conditioner. Because that's really what MetLife Stadium looks like. It's an air conditioner in the middle of East Rutherford with no redeeming qualities. And like, it's just boring. A gray sphere. Now, the media room, like the press box, all that stuff is awesome for media. But if I was a fan, man, and I traveled to London and I watched like that game at that stadium and then came home and have to go to MetLife... I would be freaking miserable because God, that was a that was just a stunning stadium. Stunning. Not only is that stadium stunning versus MetLife, but you think about MetLife being right the stadium of New York, whereas London has Tottenham Spurs Stadium, Arsenal as a stadium, Chelsea as a stadium, West Ham mm-hmm. has a stadium. I mean, all these Premier League soccer teams, Wembley is there. Um, it's amazing that one city, because yeah. of how big the Premier League is, has all these. Huge stadiums, and and as they get updated, Arsenal's now is I think like fifteen years old. Yeah. Um, but the Tottenham one, brand new. But bravo to the NFL. I will, I will the- say because when these real quick, when these games started yeah, yeah. going to London, they were always at Wembley. Um, yeah. But Tottenham is such a better stadium for football, for our football. Yeah, I don't. Have you been to Wembley before? I haven't. No, I oh, just yeah, know so it's, I, it's I, like almost too big for American okay. football. Yeah, I haven't seen it, so I, I haven't seen it. I've never been there, so I don't actually know. Um, but I will say what was really cool about being there. And I I heard like, so I remember watching like the first game in London between the giants and dolphins. And I remember like, it was funny and actually talking to people that covered the game. And they said it was funny because like the fans didn't know basically was going on. Like they weren't cheering touchdowns and like big sacks and hits. They were like cheering when the punt team came on because they were like, Oh, they're it's kicking. And like the field goals and the extra points they went nuts for, but like the big tackles, the turnovers, the interceptions, they had no idea what was really going on. Cause for a lot of those people, it was the first they really watched American football. Like no joke, man, Saturday we're in London. I remember I got back to my hotel. Um, so we didn't stay out all that late. Like it was kind of jet lag and stuff. You were tired. So Saturday, I get back to my hotel. I'm like, man, I'd like to watch some college football. Cause you know, 10 o'clock there is 5 PM this time. And I go to watch like college football. There's no college football on television. You know, Sunday I wanted to watch red zone after the game. There's no red zone. There's no NFL games on television. Like there's none of that stuff unless you have like their red zone, like whatever they're to, you have to pay specifically to get it. So like they didn't really know it. This is now, I mean, what was that? 2007 or eight that the giants played over there with the dolphins. So this is now all these years later, 12, 13 years later, those fans that packed Wembley stadium or packed Tottenham's first day, they knew sports. They didn't just know sports. They knew football. I mean, they were cheering the sacks, the interceptions. They were going, getting extra loud on third down. The touchdowns they went crazy for is as soon as the Jets scored to make it a three-point game, there was this electricity in the stadium that was just out of this world. So it was funny, though, to see that literally, I think there were 60, it was a completely sold out, 60, 65,000 people were there. I think there were all 32 teams represented evenly because people just buy jerseys for whatever team they think looks cool. And it's not like it's like, Jets, Falcons, it's not, there were Jets jerseys and Falcons jerseys, but also Seahawks and Bengals and Browns and a few Michael Dunn jerseys and all that stuff out there. But <laughs> like I will, I mean, Michael Dunn's international. We all know that. But I will honestly say that like they know their football over there. Like they know it. They embrace it. They love it. And it was, it was, again, I, I haven't been to Dallas. I haven't covered a Super Bowl. I haven't covered a playoff game. Well, so I, I cover Eagle playoff games, not Jets ones. 
that was the coolest football atmosphere I've been a part of since I started covering the NFL. It was really neat. Yeah, very cool. And um, just completely went brain dead. <laughs> we should move on. Well, you said uh, you to, had two hours of sleep. Am I right? Like you said yeah. you got two hours of sleep and uh, dealing with baby McMaster. Yeah, it's been a rough one. But yeah, I had a really good point to tack on there and it completely, uh, completely left me. But um, we will move on to the game, right? Which is actually, I think, probably the highlight of this podcast was you talking about the London experience, Connor, because it's all downhill from here. When we talk about this actual football game where the Jets, all the good the good vibes, everything that this team was feeling coming out of the win over Tennessee, it didn't take long for it to all go away because of the slow offensive starts. This team does it again. They fall behind 17 to nothing. They just don't do anything early in football games. Zach Wilson, 5 of 13, 42 yards and a pick in the first half. It's the biggest thing. You wrote all about it this week, Connor. The offense needs to show up at game time, not at halftime. Yeah, and I don't know why. I, I why I don't I can't put together the reasoning for this team not scoring a point in the first quarter of a game this year. If I'm not mistaken, they have one first down on their opening drive this year, and it came against the Panthers. They have 13 total first half points. They've got one touchdown in the first half of five games. I mean, this is the this is supposed to be the the easier part of the game. I mean, even Adam Gase and Dow Loggins, I mean, the Jets scored points on their first like usually when you hear about teams struggling to start fast, right? You hear about teams that are struggling in the first half of games, they're struggling with scoring on their first possession. The Jets aren't not scoring on their first possession. They're not scoring on their in their first two quarters of action. And I I can't I can't piece together why because this is the scripted part, right? Like this is this is the part of the of the game where they game plan. They're like, "All right, this is what the Falcons and every other opponent they play, this is what they do. This is how we're going to counteract it. These are like our first 14 plays that we want to run in the game. Like if this is what it's going to this is how we want to script it out." And in practice each week, they go over every single one of those plays against the defense that they are expected to see. And I know that everyone and their uncle right now is like jumping on LaFleur and like, it's LaFleur's fault. It's LaFleur's fault. It's LaFleur's fault. And I agree. I I 100% agree that there are portions of this that are LaFleur's fault. He sometimes gets pass happy. He sometimes gets away from the running game. There are times where it's just not as um, exciting or innovative of an offensive philosophy as you'd like to think. I mean, he continues to run these two tight end sets when the Jets don't even have a tight end on the roster. I mean, Ryan Griffin is well below average. He wouldn't be starting on 31 other teams. So why don't you go to like three wide, four wide instead of these two tight end sets? Like I, there has to be some innovation, innovations. There has to be some change. But against the Falcons, I mean, it wasn't LaFleur. I mean, it was Zach Wilson looked awful. I mean, the pass blocking was there. The run blocking wasn't great, but it was good enough. I mean, the receivers are dropping passes. Zach Wilson's missing the easiest of passes. It's just... There's the interception. I mean, there's just nothing there from the offense in the first half of games. And it's like, I don't know where you go. And and Sala said he's going to go back to the drawing board. You know, he's going to work his butt off this entire week to figure out what's going wrong. Maybe it does start with a ramp-up period. Like, I remember that's what the Jets did last year, that what they started doing with Adam Gase in practice is that they would begin with a first-team offense against first-team defense mini-scrimmage where they would run a few plays to try to keep the energy up high and start practice fast, not special teams, not individual drills, go right into team drills, then go to individuals, then do special teams. 
Maybe that's what the Jets have to do. I know that's what some teams do in high school. Maybe it's LaFleur going up to the booth, although I don't think that's going to fix it. And the Jets can't send LaFleur back up to the booth because Sala told us that Zach Wilson said he needs LaFleur down on the field and he wants LaFleur down on the field because he feels like it benefits him. But something's got to change. Something's got to give. Something's got to break. Because if the Jets... This is the second time in five games that the Jets could have won a game if they didn't sleepwalk those first two quarters because they could have beaten the Panthers and Sam Darnold if they did anything in the first half. They would have beaten the Falcons if they did anything in the first half. Game against the Broncos was a disaster for a multitude of reasons. The game against the Patriots, the Jets were actually in, but Zach Wilson threw four interceptions and he's the sole reason they lost that game. But those were two other games. Two other games they could have won. If you include that with the Titans, you're talking about not a one and four football team, but one that's three and two. And it's because they keep, they're not starting slow. This isn't like the Jets can't score on their first possession. Again, zero points on their first possession. Zero points in the first quarter. One first down, if I'm not mistaken, on their first possession of football games. One touchdown in the five games of the first half of all five games. 13 total points. There are teams that score that in a quarter. The Jets have it in five in the first five first halves. They have 13 total points. They have to find a way to fix this. I wish I could sit here and give you the X's and O's of how to do it, but it's just, it's brutal. And it's starting to legitimately cost them opportunities in this season. If they don't fix it, it's only going to get worse as we go on out. Big picture when you think about, you know, a quarterback in Zach Wilson, who is a rookie and is trying to find his footing and find his way. When you look back on it now, the Jets hiring of Robert Sala and LaFleur, it's almost they're going through the same thing, right? I mean, there's just a lack of experience here as far as coaching goes. And maybe that turns out that they figure it out and they find their footing. And this is a great, you know, offensive coordinator who is here for a couple of years and goes on to a great head coaching career. Or maybe... Uh, LaFleur in his first job as an offensive coordinator doesn't quite get it right and has to go back to the drawing board. I mean, hopefully it's the former, but through five games, it's certainly been frustrating. Should we have expected this, Connor, because LaFleur has never been an offensive coordinator before? Um, I think it's deeper than that. I think that I think that's that's part of it. I think that there is some struggles there, but I, I think it goes a lot, lot deeper than that. It's First-year head coach, Robert Sala, which is fine. Like, that's not that's not uncanny. That's not uncharacteristic. But what I would compare it to was when Wade or um, Sean McVay got his job with the Rams. One of the first moves that he made was he brought Wade Phillips with him. Wade Phillips right. was somebody who had years as a head coach. So when there were little things that would come up, Wade could be like, well, you know, this is kind of how this works. This is how this is, might be the way you could do it. This is where you could approach that. This is the way you could approach that. So it was like a sounding board as somebody who had a lot of experience, not only in just coaching in the NFL, which Wade Phillips did, obviously he'd been there forever and he could help a very young Sean McVay, but he also had experience being a head coach. So he could be a sounding board for someone who hadn't had a, hadn't been a head coach before that was leaning on. I'm not saying the Jets needed to bring, uh, you know, 60, 70 year old offensive or defensive coordinator with him. I'm not saying they needed like a Chan Gailey type guy or a Wade Phillips type guy. But when you look at this Jets coaching staff, it's not just first year offensive coordinator, first year head coach. First year offensive co- first year head coach and Robert Sala, never been a head coach before, first year head coach. First year offensive coordinator, Michael Floor, never been an offensive coordinator before, never even called plays at the NFL level before. First year defensive coordinator and Jeff Ulbrich in in terms of a full-time role. First year, 
quarterbacks coach and Rob Calabrese. The veteran experience that they had hired with Greg Knapp, hoping that he could be that sounding board and, and help rear the quarterback and was so heavily involved during OTAs and minicamp with Zach Wilson. I mean, he was in, he was in and around Zach Wilson wherever he went, tragically passed away. They replaced him with Kavanaugh, but he doesn't have the same resume or experience or success in his career that Greg Knapp would have had. But then you go to the quarterback room. You've got Zach Wilson, rookie first year quarterback, Mike White, no regular season snaps. Then Josh Johnson, he's a career journeyman. I think it's the fact that you have an entire operation specifically, you can go defensively too, because there's a ton of it there, but specifically on the offensive side of this, where it is so many first year, first year, first year, first year, first year, that when things start to go wrong, when somebody needs to do to kind of be re-geared or repoint in the right direction, there's not that person there. You know, Sam had Josh McCown. You know, there's always that person within the building. Usually you can be like, been there, done that. He can help everyone come along. He can help the rookie coach, the rookie coordinator, the rookie quarterbacks coach, the rookie quarterback, all that stuff. The Jets don't really have that. And I think that probably is a part of it because it's not necessarily the blind leading the blind. I mean, that that would, that's a little bit of an aggressive thing to say. But it is just a lack of an experience and a lot of people learning together at the same time. And unfortunately, that's not always what you want when you have a rookie quarterback. You don't necessarily want that much inexperience when you have a rookie. You want someone there who's been there, done that to help. Because at the end of the day, the quarterback's really all that matters. And you want to get the quarterback to where the quarterback needs to be. The Jets obviously haven't had haven't done that. Zach Wilson's been more bad than good aside from a second half against the Panthers and, and a second half against the Titans. But yeah, I think that I think you're hitting the nail on the head there, Tim. I, I think that's 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 a part of this as well. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Connor, before we move on to the other parts of the game, the defense um, and their struggles as well, just specifically to Zach, we should speak a little bit on because one thing that stood out to me in this game, maybe more so than the previous games when he had his struggles, his ups and downs, was there was easy throws in big spots that really could have made a difference in this game that Zach Wilson missed. That surprised me, just the, you know, bouncing it to a, a receiver in the flat and and missing the easy throws in big spots. And not only that, there's also times where he's just late, where it's like, it's almost what I didn't necessarily see coming this year. And... It's because of the way the Jets conducted their offseason program and training camp was that they rarely allowed Zach to improvise during those practices. He ran the plays as they were scripted. He never left the pocket. He stayed in the pocket. If it wasn't there, he took a sack. Like they ran the plays as they were designed. And I thought it was the right way to run throughout practice and not just let him go free for all and scramble around and run around like Johnny Manziel when he was in college and just throw it deep and see what happens. Similar to like the Corey Davis touchdown, because it was kind of like learning, okay, this is how you want to play quarterback. And then when everything else breaks down, you can pull that improvisational ability out of your, out of your back pocket. There are very few quarterbacks 
that can live by the improv like Russell Wilson does. Like, it's just not usually sustainable. What I've seen throughout a large portion of this year is that Zach seems to struggle a lot when he's just playing within the pocket. Like, his best plays are the magic that you're like, wow, where did that come from? It's not when he's, aside from maybe the preseason against the Packers, there hasn't been the play where he just drops back, throws the ball to an open guy, completes it, touchdown, you know, or just runs through the play the way they're designed. There's been a little bit of it, but not enough of it. And when it comes to like some of his late reads, I wonder if it's almost like when he's playing improv, when he's pulling the magic out of his hat, he's not really like, thinking too much you know he's just trying to make a play it's backyard football he sees someone open he throws it deep to him he points him deep like the touching the core he pointing them deep throwing it deep that's not play design that's not thinking that's running around letting instincts takes over taking over and playing with your instincts when Zach is playing within the offense and not with that improv it's almost like he's overthinking everything like he sees it he knows what he sees he recognizes what he sees but then there's that half second or less where he goes, is that really what I think I see? And then by the time he confirms it in his mind and he throws it, he's late. And that's led to interceptions. That's led to pass breakups. That led to window closing, things like that. I don't. And then when it comes to some of those throws that you mentioned with the bouncing the passes, the incompletions, the throws that like should be just gimmies. It's almost like sometimes I think maybe he believes that those are supposed to be just the gimmies. So it's almost like he doesn't think as much about them, you know, and I don't necessarily know if that's true. We'll, we'll know when we talk to Zach. I got to we have press conferences at 130 today, like as the uh, pre bye week uh, wrap up. So I, I would assume that Zach probably talks to us and I'd like to ask him that because it's. It's almost like when you golf, right? And sometimes you got like the three foot putt. Like you can make that three foot, two foot putt in your sleep. But if you just kind of go up there nonchalantly and just tap it, it can go left or right, you know? And Or it's like the free throw where it's like you've made a million of them. So you're like, I'll oh, just put this up. It's going to go in. And you obviously lose your technique, your form, and you throw it away. I wonder if like when Zach has seen some of these easy throws, like the ones that are just pitch and catch, like any one of the three of us could make them. It's just in your sleep. It's like he realizes that, just goes, okay, just get it out, and it's going to go there, flips it, and then starts mentally moving on to the next one, and all of a sudden he misses it. Because the one to Crowder in the first half that's going to go for a touchdown off of a turnover and potentially flip the game completely, that's an easy throw that Crowder's going to catch with blockers in front and run. The one to Tevin Coleman, where he bounced it off Morgan Moses' back. I understand sort of what he was doing. He's just trying to get it to Coleman, and that if Morgan Moses wasn't there, it's not going to hit Moses' back. It's going to go right to Coleman. But that's when you see, and you're like, okay, float it over, have Coleman catch it like this while turning, and then he can take off and run, and he might be getting into the end zone. The one to, to um, Keelan Cole that was intercepted, that throws there. He's laid on his read. He throws it behind him. The defender undercuts it. It's picked off. Like, it's just, these are easy throws. These are obvious throws. These are throws that, like, anyone can make, and he's just not. And I think that it's almost like, because they're so easy, because he has so much arm talent, because he knows he can make them, it's almost like he's not fully committing to the throw or fully going through with the throw. And he's like, has it's, it's I don't know, it's like just assuming it's a gimme and then you're like, wait, no, there's no gimme. And it's probably just a mental change. It's probably just a click he's got to make. Watching the film, he's going to realize it. But it is a concern because those missed throws, if he hits the one to Keelan Cole, right, in the first half that's intercepted, that's not an interception, that's a 20, 15, 20-yard 20 gain that's going to be moving the sticks. 
if he hits the one to Jamison Crowder, that's a potential touchdown. If he hits the one to, to Tevin Coleman, that's moving him inside that maybe another touchdown or a, a potential touchdown there as well. These are throws that any quarterback should make. There's a reason Zach isn't making them. I don't necessarily know what the reason is that Zach isn't making them, but it's something that we he needs to figure out because there are very few sure things in the NFL. There are very few gimmies in the NFL. There are very few things in the NFL where you're just like, yeah, we're good. Yeah, we got this. Those throws are the, yeah, we're good. We got this. And your offense is not going to function. Your offense is not going to move unless you hit those 99.9% of the time. And Zach Wilson just isn't doing that right now. So we've been piling on the offense, but the defense this certainly does not get a free pass in this one. Um, while the offense was struggling to get anything going early in the game, the defense was letting Atlanta run up and down the field. They scored in their first three possessions. This game was 17 to nothing. It felt like so quickly. Um, both units obviously were better in the second half, and this game got close, and the Jets had a had a chance. But the defense that so strong against the Titans with the pass rush, no pass rush in this one. Couldn't get to the quarterback. Couldn't get to Matt Ryan, who was 33 of 45, 342 yards, and two touchdowns. Um, kind of where did the pass rush go? Was it just a matter of the Falcons being a worse matchup for this D-line? Or what, what was going on? No, I think it was Matt Ryan just releasing the ball really Getting quick. Like, it was just him realizing that if he sat there in the – like, that's the thing. If you go back and you look, and I think it was SB Nation that actually compiled these numbers through Pro Football Focus for the first time um, – when the Jets sacked Ryan Tannehill last week seven times, they hit him another seven. But on those seven sacks, only two of those sacks came in under three and a half seconds. The other, or yeah, I believe it was three and a half seconds, where only two of those sacks came in under three and a half seconds. The other five came when uh, Ryan Tannehill had to hold the ball. So A.J. Brown, Julio Jones both missed that game. The Titans were playing with their three, four, five receivers. Those guys weren't creating the separation that that you know Tannehill's accustomed to seeing. Because there was no separation, he had to hold the ball longer, waiting for those guys to get open. As he's holding the ball longer, the Jets' defense bears down and brings him down. Matt Ryan saw that on film. Matt Ryan realized, if I hold the ball for three and a half seconds, four seconds, I'm going to get destroyed too. So let's get it out quick. Let's hit the quick passes. Let's hit the slants. Let's hit the curls. Let's just get the ball out. I have a few longer developing plays. But for the most part, it's out of my hand quick. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. The defense, like you said, deserves criticism. Like, they... This is the the second week in a row where they had a chance to slam the door. And well, last week against the Titans, they had a chance to slam the door and end the game on that final touchdown drive, right? Where like they scored to tie the game late. I think it was three fourth downs. The Titans ended up converting and then scoring near the goal line. They had a chance to end the game so many times there. They did not do it. Titans tied. It goes to overtime. Even on that overtime drive, the Jets had a chance to end it where they keep the Titans from going down into... A field goal range. I mean, Randy, they, the reason that game wasn't a tie was because Randy Bullock missed a kick. If Randy Bullock doesn't miss a kick, it's a tie game. And suddenly we're talking about the defense really breaking down. In the first half, immediately spotting the Falcons basically 17 points. Then in the fourth quarter, the Jets finally get it back, right? I mean, I, I'm, I do genuinely believe that if the Jets got the ball again, they were going to go down the field, score a touchdown, and they were going to win the game. Yep. Instead... The defense allows Matt Ryan to go right down the field, 39 yards on the first play to Kyle Pitts. They convert a third and 13. They convert a third and two. They score a touchdown and suddenly the game's over because with two minutes left or 2.30 left or something like that, it's a two possession game and it's basically over for the Jets. Like there's no chance because you're never going to hit an onside kick in today's NFL. So the defense again, second week in a row, chance to not undoubtedly win the game but at least give the ball back to the offense with a chance to win the game. And they don't do it. You know, it's, and I talked to guys after the game. I was like, do you think that you guys are still looking for that killer instinct, right? Where it's, 
We talked about that all the time with Todd Bowles, where when the game was on the line, the defense needed to stop. They didn't have it, and they couldn't get it. And it was, do you lack a killer instinct? And they weren't willing to go there yet. It's something to monitor down the road. Where I hesitate slightly in going, let's rip the defense. Let's tear apart the defense. Let's rip their heads off. And what the hell is wrong? Like, yeah, they're great in the first three quarters, but they break down in the fourth. Is that they are getting no help from their offense in the going back to what we opened the show with the first half of games. The Jets offense, even if they're able to get it going in the second half, even if they're able to find their rhythm in the second half, even if they're able to finally ignite themselves and get it going and look like a real NFL offense in the third and fourth quarters, the incessant, consistent three and outs in the first two quarters have a ripple down effect on the rest of the team. What I mean by that is the defense was on the field for something like, I think it was 46 plays in the first half of that game. They were on the field. The Jets held the ball for just 11 and a half minutes, I believe it was, in the first half of that Falcons game. And seven minutes and 48 seconds of that, it might be a couple seconds off, but seven minutes and 48 seconds of that came on their field goal drive. So that defense was gassed. When you gas them in the first half and you keep them on the field for as much as they are in the first half, eventually your legs get a little heavy. Eventually you get a little tired. Eventually that energy and all that passion and all the stops that you were able to get in the first three quarters, you're gassed by the time the fourth quarter comes around and you just don't have enough juice to get that final stop. If the Jets offense hadn't had so many three and outs, in the first half, if the Jets' offense had maintained a few more drives, if the Jets' offense hadn't put their defense in the position they did early in that game, maybe the defense is more apt to get that stop because they have that they have the extra energy. But the thing that this goes on too, Tim, is that it's not just the first half of this game, though. The Jets' defense was on the field for a hundred snaps, if you include penalties, against the Titans. So you go from a hundred snaps against the Titans. You then practice, you know, walk through Monday, practice Wednesday, Thursday in Florham Park, get on a seven-hour flight to London, practice on Friday in London, have off Saturday, then have a game on Sunday. So you have now a international flight back on the field, and the one thing the Jets' defense needed after playing 100 snaps last week was like, all right, just give us a hand offense, give us a chance to breathe, we'll still give you everything we have, but we can't be on the field as much as we are. And I'm pretty sure they were on the field for like 80 plays or something like that, or like 78, 80 plays. On, on Sunday. So it's, and they're out rep by like third, 25 or 30 plays. That they're running more, 25 or 30 more plays than the Jets' offense, which basically means that the Jets' defense is not playing four quarters of football. They're playing five quarters of football. With how much the Jets give the ball back to the other team because of how much the, the offense struggles in the first half of games, these defenses are running a game and a quarter, a game and a half more of plays on the Jets' defense. And that's taking its toll. So, yeah, you wanted the defense to get the stop back. Yeah, you wanted the Jets defense to give the ball back to the offense more. Yeah, you wanted the Jets defense to come out with a little more fire early in the game and not put them in a 17-0 hole that early. But I think one of the reasons you're seeing the defense struggle later on in games specifically, I think the first half of the game was was the a little bit of jet lag and then they got it going a little bit. But one of the reasons why they are breaking in the fourth quarter is because of how much they're on the field. You can't keep putting this much tension on the rope, eventually it's going to snap. And I think that's what the Jets are doing. And it's 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 some of the defensive struggles, I think, are going directly to the offense. And and that's why I, I asked, like, I asked Zach Wilson after the game, like, 
does he feel like he and the offense have let the defense down because of the fact they just have not been able to maintain drives? And and he said, no, that's that's not how they feel. But I wonder if this continues and this keeps going and this keeps happening, if it's going to be something where there starts to be a little bit of tension in the locker room because the defense is doing everything they can and they're getting no help from the offense. As CJ Mosley said, offense goes three and out. It's our job to force a three and out. But there's a lot of pressure to do that. It's not easy to do that. And the Jets are under man. That's not a phenomenal secondary. The linebacking unit is depleted, although they should get Jared Davis back. I mean, it's not, this isn't the 85 Bears. This isn't a, the 2000 Ravens. This isn't a defense that can stand on their head for four quarters and it's not going to matter. Like this is a defense that is playing well above expectations, but make no mistake about it. They had low expectations for a reason. You can't keep relying on like this. They need some help. And right now they're just not getting it from the offense. And I think that's one of the reasons you're seeing the defense struggle late in games. All right. So back to the Jets and it is the bye week coming up, which feels like good timing. I don't know, Connor, your thoughts on that. I mean, this team's obviously at a point where the bye week is good for from a travel standpoint coming off the trip to London. But the big step backwards as far as the struggling, the the offense versus the defense that you brought up between before the break, it feels like those players could maybe use some time away from each other and get back at it. And maybe the biggest thing is just this coaching staff getting together and just rethinking the approach here heading into the next stretch of the season. Yeah, I, I think it's it, the biggest thing, obviously, is they need to figure out the offense and how they're starting fast. Um, defensively, I think they're good. Like, I mean, I don't like they are so far exceeding expectations. The pass rush is so much better than I thought it was going to be. The scheming is better than I thought it was going to be. The secondary, they've, they've perfectly married their pass rush and their secondary together. I mean, the defense has not been a reason they have lost any game this season. They really have not. Not the opener against the Panthers, not week two against the Patriots. I mean, there has been no game, or the, even the Broncos. Like, there's been no game this year where I've been like, man, the defense is why they lost. Not once. Like, even this one against the Ravens. Like, I don't put it on the defense. I put it on the offense, the slow start, and what they did to the offense against the Titans, having them play 100 snaps, because that often, like, the Jets should have lost that game, too. The defense stood on their head three times. The Titans went right into the red zone, and the Jets stood on their head all three times. They came away with three field goals. They score one touchdown on any of those possessions, and the Jets don't win that game. So the defense is the reason they won against the Titans, and they didn't get help in the other three games, which is why they're one and four. So the defense, I think, just keep moving forward. And that defense is also getting an infusion of talent because Marcus May is going to be coming back, and you're going to have Jared Davis coming back. And the one thing I was curious about, which Robert Sala talked about yesterday, is that Obviously, Jared Davis, um, he's going to be back, like, but it's probably going to take him another week or two before he's like really up to speed. Salah did say that when he's healthy, when he's acclimated, healthy and acclimated, he's going to be the starter. He's going to get the full complement of starter reps. It's going to be him and Mosley. I'm curious then what the Jets do with Quincy Williams because Quincy has played out of his mind. I mean, that guy is, again, I, I said this last week. I don't know if he does what he's supposed to do on every play, but whatever he does, he does it 100 miles an hour. And he comes in like a bat. I mean, he is a bat out of hell when he's on the field. You even see some of the hits he made, the forced fumble he had. I mean, he's making plays. And it's almost like as long as he's making plays, you live with a couple he doesn't make because you know he's going to do something every game where you're like, wow. So I don't know. Does that mean he plays the the position that they had uh, Sherwood or Hamza playing? Like, is that now going to be where Quincy goes over to? Or is there going to be a rotation? But Salah said, no, that Jared Davis is a hell of a football player and they're going to keep Jared Davis on the field. So other than that, I mean, I think the defense is good right now and they're going to get better when they get some guys healthy. And, and it's going to be fun to watch them move forward and keep watching. Again, these young guys that have started so well, 
They're only going to get better as the season goes on. Gidry, Carter, Eccles, only going to get better. Quincy Williams, only going to get better. The defensive line, Quinn and Williams, all those dudes, they're only going to get better. So I'm fine with the defense. The offense just needs to figure their, their stuff out. Like they, they need to figure their stuff out or it's going to be a very, very, very long year. I mean, it's going to be a long year. Uh, one more thing to touch on before we say goodbye, and that is John Franklin Myers, who we just haven't done a pod since bets. the extension. We're, we're touching on our bets. Connor, and uh, speaking of the defense yeah. and the pass rush, and just he was emotional in his press conference after the, the deal, which is it's always kind of touching to see these guys when they talk about what it means to their families and all of that. But good job by the Jets to wrap him up now for a longer t- period of time. When he was emotional, that was awesome. Anytime you see players get emotional, it's awesome. I will say that, like, I think John Franklin Myers was more popular than the Beatles this week, probably after that press conference. I mean, I, <laughs> the weirdest thing about that, like, I've seen players cry before. Like, I like Josh McCown cried. Like, I've seen guys cry. And John Franklin Myers crying was just, I mean, he talked about his son. Like, it's emotional. Like, you can tell how much his son means to him. You can tell because of his background growing up how he did. That's, this means a lot to him. But, like, after he, he answered the question the way that he did, and then Megan um, Gilmore was like, all right, I think that that's good. To have all of the London media give him a like standing ovation was a little weird. Like I'll be honest, like the guy's like emotional and crying, but like they were like, like just freaking going crazy. The guy next to me, it was almost like the freaking Hunger Game or uh, the scene in um, uh, Avengers uh, Infinity War, where like the guy's like magnificent, magnificent. Like that's li- the guy next to me was going like that was tremendous. That was and like, like in his British, that was tremendous. That was amazing. That was tremendous. Like they were going nuts over him crying. And I was like, I'm looking at Andy and Costello and I'm like, what's happening? Why are they giving him around? Why, why are we cheering? Like I, all of us, New York media are like, what's happened? Like they were cheering them. And I was like, that's weird. But I will say this from a football perspective, tremendous job by the Jets. Absolutely tremendous job for the Jets because John Franklin Myers is a 25 year old who is an ascending defensive lineman who the Jets got on a bargain. If this season continues the way for him, like it's going and say he finished, he didn't have to get double digit sacks. Say he gets to eight or nine sacks. Say he does get to 10 sacks in the off season. You're not talking about a contract where you're paying him what he got. You're looking at him getting paid by another team. Carl Lawson money. Like, I mean, there was going to be a bidding war for John Franklin Myers services that was going to make it like, okay, now we're really going to invest in this guy. Like with the, the deal the Jets gave him, it's incredibly team friendly. Like I'm actually stunned and surprised that John Franklin Myers signed that contract because I'm like, you could have gotten a lot better. But he obviously he said, he's like, he wanted the insurance. He wanted to stay. He likes the coaching, all that stuff. He likes himself in the scheme. But like he could have gotten a lot more if he waited and this season continues the way that it is. But the Jets, to their credit, get him done at a good price and lock up a a a major piece to this defensive line and I did SNY in London with Janae Coakley and I remember she asked me like you know the, the Jets they signed Carl Lawson they now have re-signed John Franklin Myers they're going to now eventually probably have to pay Quinn and Williams within the next year or two because he looks like a really dominant player as well and he's going to earn significantly more than John Franklin Myers like that's a lot of resources that a you've already and then b also have to invest in the defensive line and that was my takeaway as well when I first saw I was like four years the 55 million, like all that stuff came in. Obviously, the guarantees and stuff make it not 55 million. But like I saw that as well. I was like, man, they've invested a lot. But you know, they're they're pretty good on the defensive line. Now you got your three main cornerstone pieces, Carl Lawson, John Franklin Myers, Quinn and Williams. Now you just have the guys that you kind of shuffle in and out like you would 
uh, uh, Sheldon Rankins when they brought him in and Foley and like those different guys you can have in rotation, like have your three staples and then rotate the rest. That's not the case because I reached over to some people over in the Jets and I was like, man, you guys have done a pretty good job piecing that defensive line together. And I was told we're only getting started. So the defensive line that Robert Sala had in San Francisco where you had significant draft capital tied to Bosa, uh, DeForest Buckner, Eric Armstead, um, trading for D Ford. Uh, I'm forgetting the other guy. Um, uh, Solomon Thomas. Like all of those guys where they invested draft picks and money and trades, all that where they just kept dumping it into the defensive line. Well, that defensive line led them, helped lead them to the Super Bowl in 2019. So that, what worked in the Bay Area, Salah wants to recreate in New York. And that means not just having these three pieces, but it would not surprise me in the slightest if one of those two first round picks is a defensive end. One of the sec- a second round pick is a pass rusher. If they just keep dumping resources in the defensive line, knowing that if they can have a forceful, dominant defensive line that is around the quarterback consistently, they can get by with just about anything in the secondary. And that's what they did in San Francisco, and that's what he's going to try to do. So kudos to the Jets, though, for getting this one done now when they did, because it saved them a ton of money. Because if they waited, it was going to be a lot more. All right. One thing, Tim, Connor did want to get to his picks. And oh. um, the only reason I wanted to stop you was because I was 3-0-2, Connor. Ooh. That's fine, though. <laughs> We're going to have to get the broom. I'm going to bring the broom out for another sweep for next week. i got to look over the lines. I, didn't even, the I literally didn't even are. know until you mentioned, oh, until no, I want to get to the picks. Well, did you follow my picks? Did you follow what I did? No. Copy I don't even know what your picks were. I didn't even remember what my picks were, to be fully honest with you. But so that probably was, pulls us pretty close then, because I don't, I don't think I was only like a, two games ahead of you. Yeah. So we're, yeah, we're just, really moving past Tim, but he's right. going to have Ailey starting to pick. Tim, so. Yeah. So I how had, are you gonna do that? Are you gonna like? Yeah, it's tough because you can't really. There's no the communication's not working really yet. So <laughs> you gotta you gotta step that up. You gotta step that up. <laughs> I'll figure it out. All right. Well, but we're not. Look, you're not gonna be like Lindsay, like like Lindsay's daughter. We're gonna have her name is. We're Lena. gonna have her pick Lena. We're gonna have her pick spreads. We need to make yeah. money on this. Like this whole money line betting thing. Like it's not gonna work when you're just picking favorites. We need we need you to we need spreads from her. So please do that. Ailey needs spreads. I say that right? Ailey? Ailey. Yes. Very good. Ailey. But I need over, to keep saying because I don't want to screw it up and then, you know, you hate me. Head over to Lindsay Jones's Twitter. Um, Lena Jones gave an analysis on what the Chiefs need to do better um, on her walk to school. Play defense? On her walk really? to school I do want to, I do morning, to watch that. So, <laughs> you know, walking to kindergarten giving a, a film breakdown is pretty cute. So The apple did not fall far from the tree, no. I see. Yes. Yes. Support women in sports more than ever, Absolutely. Right? All right, and kudos to everyone who joined us this morning watching live, or if you're tuning in later on Spotify or Apple, thanks for listening to the podcast. We're going to be back again next week. No second episode this week because of the bye week, no game to get previewed for, but you can save 50% off a one-year subscription to The Athletic. Go to theathletic.com slash can't wait. Again, we'll be back again next week. We can't wait.